This is Publishers Weekly Radio, the authority on all things books and publishing, with everything you need to know from your favorite books and the world in which they live to bestseller lists and publishing news. Here's the inside story on your favorite story. Publishers Weekly Radio, with your hosts, Rose Fox and Mark Rotella. Hello and welcome to Publishers Weekly Radio on the web at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio and also available on iTunes. I'm Rose Fox and I'm a reviews editor at Publishers Weekly. And I'm Mark Rotella, senior editor at Publishers Weekly. We're bringing you the very best of book talk directly from PW's offices in New York City, the heart of the book publishing world. On today's show, Adam Begley discusses his new biography, Updike. Then PW Reviews editor Alex Crowley joins us for our annual celebration of Poetry Month. But first, here's a sneak peek at next week's Publishers Weekly bestseller list powered by Nielsen Bookscan. So maybe I'll start off with nonfiction this time. Yeah, go so for it. Number 20, we've got, we've got a pretty varied list uh, this week, uh, is a uh, biography of John Wayne called The Life and Legend uh, by Scott Amon. He's uh, done the biography of John Ford uh, called Print the Legend. And uh, we gave this one a starred review. Um, it's funny looking at this picture of John Wayne on the book jacket, you know, from the small picture. He looks just for a moment of a, uh, like James Dean. I was and, thinking and that, actually. It, mm-hmm. It's amazing. And, and you realize how young he was when he first came on the scene before we know him as what he is, you know, what, what sort of craggy face. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. And we say, uh, so, so here, uh, um, Eamon draws on uh, interviews with family, friends, and uh, he we say we colorfully chronicles Wayne's life and work from his birth in Winterset, Iowa, uh, to his childhood and youth in Glendale, California. And, of course, he went to college at USC, where he was a football standout uh, until he was uh, injured uh, while playing football. And shortly after that, he started getting into uh, acting and, and theater. So, so it's a it's a pretty pretty big book. This is uh, comes in at number twenty. Uh, this this great biography of John Wayne. So next on the list, we're gonna we're gonna jump. We're, I'm just gonna go in um, reverse order here. So sure. we're gonna go to number five. Mix it up. The title of this book is called "Don't Hurt People and Don't Take Their Stuff: A Libertarian <laughs> Manifesto" by Matt Kibbe, and uh, he's uh, New York Times bestselling author. He's the president of Freedom Works. Uh, which is he's this is apparently the, this is the uh, uh, the new manifesto for the uh, or I'm sorry the manifesto for the new libertarian movement and basically uh, one of his uh, plans uh, for reclaiming our inalienable rights and regaining control of our lives is don't hurt people uh, he says free people just want to be left alone not hassled or harmed by someone else with an agenda or designs over their life and property property uh, so that's at number five. Uh, number two, the people of Duck Commander is, is uh, just still so many books. This is the women of Duck Commander, surprising insights from the women behind the beards about what makes this family work by Kay Robertson, who uh, was also had also come out uh, last year with a cookbook. I was going to say, I, yes. I feel like we've, we've heard from we've these heard ladies from before. Yes, we have. Yes, we have. And here she shares a story about relationship with Phil. Phil Robertson, of course, is the Duck Commander. And this is a number two. At number one is a star review of Flash Boys, A Wall Street Revolt by Michael Lewis, coming out from uh, Norton Books. And uh, he's the author of Moneyball. And we say in his latest captivating expedition into the marketplace jungle, explores how the rise of computerized stock exchanges and their attendant scams started a battle for the soul of Wall Street. 
and uh, that's our number one book. It's been getting a lot of attention. What do we have on fiction? On the fiction list, we also have a new number one. It's I've Got You Under My Skin by Mary Higgins Clark. Obviously, mm-hmm. it's a well-known name. She's Mystery Writers of America, Grandmaster. And uh, this is a contemporary thriller. It uh, opens with a fatal shooting on a playground and uh, just gets more exciting from mm-hmm. there. Mm-hmm. So four estranged best friends eventually come together to understand what's happening and how they can solve the crime. Clark keeps readers guessing and in suspense, and our review says that uh, since any one of the old companions is potentially culpable of this murder, uh, it's uh, there's a lot of waiting and struggling to figure out what's going on and who done mm-hmm. it. That's a classic, and it's at number one. It just barely beats out our number two book, which is The King by J.R. Ward. This is the latest Black Dagger Brotherhood paranormal novel, and uh, this uh, at this point in the series, it's mostly for the fans, people who've been following these characters for a long time. Mm-hmm. Ward is uh, very adept at taking background characters from earlier books and putting them in the spotlight in the later books. Oh, wonderful. And so uh, this is another one of those. Um, this time it's focused on uh, the royal bloodline among a bunch of paranormals and, and mm-hmm. who is entitled to the throne. So that's I, number that's, two. That's pretty fascinating for a writer. I mean, to, to be able to do that, because I, I, as a, you know, someone who's writing fiction, I imagine you spend a lot of time with these characters, and then to be able to see someone who you've written about, who had maybe a, a minor role, to say, wow, this, this character is really interesting. I, I, let me do a whole book around her. Mm-hmm. This is really, uh, really wonderful. Yeah, and it definitely keeps the readers engaged, sure. too, because you know, as as they're reading through those earlier books, they'll be curious about someone who maybe only gets a little bit of screen time, but right. is a very tantalizing character. Sure. And often, especially with books like these, which have romantic content as well, you're, you're waiting and waiting and waiting for your favorite character to finally get their chance at meeting their mate and having a happy ending. Mm-hmm. So um, that's at number two, no surprise. And uh, I want to go a little bit further down the list to number 12, uh, Nevada Bar's Destroyer Angel. We gave this a starred review. It's uh, the 18th novel featuring National Park Service Ranger Anna Pigeon. We said it's absolutely gripping and uh, that Barr's gift for depicting breathtaking scenery elevates the thriller story, which involves armed men, a solo canoe ride, and Mm. all sorts of exciting adventures in the wilderness. Uh, And we say that uh, Anna's complex, ever-evolving personality will definitely keep readers enthralled. So that's, again, on our hardcover fiction list at number 12. Sounds good. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, Adam Begley will tell us what made John Updick both ordinary and extraordinary. We'll be right back. Welcome back. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Today, we've got Adam Begley on the line. His new biography of John Updike is simply titled Updike. Adam, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. So I have to start off by asking, what inspired you to take on John Updike? I've been an Updike fan ever since I was a reader, um, but I wasn't, I wouldn't say a mammoth one. Um, I was a a critic and a reviewer, um, 
I wrote his obituary when he died. Mm. And the week after it appeared, I was asked by HarperCollins if I would be interested in writing a biography. No kidding. And, uh, Great. What had never, it had nev- would never have occurred to me independently, but once the subject was broached, it made sense. And it seemed to me suddenly that everything I'd been doing for the last 20 years led to precisely this point. So what was your entree? What, what about the obituary led you into this, this deep research of, of Updike? Well, I mean, I think that probably the hook in the obituary that caught the editor's eye was my anecdote about um, my, be- my encounter with Updike as a baby. Mm. I, was, um, I was lying in my parents' house in a little rocking, baby rocking chair, and mm. uh, Updike wandered in. They, he was a friendly acquaintance of my parents, and he um, saw me, and he saw a bowl of oranges sitting on the table next to me, and he picked up three oranges and started to juggle. <laughs> And, and I started to laugh, um, big, deep belly laughter. And mm. according to family legend, that was the first time I had ever laughed. Oh, so wow. there was a there was a connection there. Mm-hmm, sure. And so, so tell us a little bit more about wh- what it was. You a little bit uh, uh, beyond that anecdote, which I which I really like uh, about your interest in him as a as a as a writer. Um, I was. Um, I, I interviewed him twice in his lifetime, um, and the, the first time was in 1993, uh, and his uh, memoirs had recently come out, uh, and uh, I read those and was completely fascinated by him as a man, as well as his uh, undeniable and famous eloquence and uh, the, 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 the sinuosity of his sentences. Um, I then profiled him again in 2003, just when the early stories were coming out. And again, he had a book um, recently published that was completely captivating to me. The the early stories um, from the beginning, 1953 to 1975, is a, a stupendous collection of work. Um, I think Updike, in a way, thought that, that that body was going to be what was going to keep him famous, and he may not be wrong. So this is you know, really the first substantial biography of him. Um, that seems sort of incredible to me that, that no one's really taken such a close look at him before. Were, were you surprised to be breaking ground there? Um, there is actually a, a very excellent book by um, a fellow named William Pritchard called Updike, America's Man of Letters. It's not a biography. It uh, charts his work from beginning to end, but they're little biographical sketches. I'm the first real biographer, yes. Um, I was um, surprised. I was overwhelmed by the quantity of research material available to me. He was a, um, a tremendous correspondent, wrote letter after letter. Um, he was almost as prolific a letter writer as he was an author. Mm. Um, and, uh, yeah, no, I was mostly just overwhelmed and excited by the riches of what I was about to embark on. So how long was the process? I mean, researching and then writing? He died in 2009, so it's almost five years later. Have you spent that whole time working on this book? Yes, and in fact, I can probably tell you that I haven't read a word of anything except Updike in the last five years. (laughs) Wow. Well, I quickly calculated that since he'd published more than 60 books, and if I spent, say, a week on on each one, that would be well over (laughs) a year of reading. Right, right. Wow. 
And and you're talking about the the, the research uh, and, and the letters, the pro- prolific letter writing he did. And and you also talked to a lot of people, his his family members, friends. Who who did you talk to, and and how willing were they to discuss uh, Updike with you? Well, the, the most important person for me to talk with was his first wife, um, Mary, whom he married when he was still in college. He was a junior in college when they got married. And then they had four children together and stayed together until um, 1974. Mm-hmm. Um, and so what you really get when you're talking to Mary is the history of John coming of age as a writer, um, starting out his career, becoming a father, moving to Ipswich, where so much of the, the um, Ipswich, Massachusetts, where so much of his uh, writing took place. Um, it, he, he was the most important source and a, a really um, encouraging and warm and helpful uh, source. And in our review, we say that readers will see in Begley's Updike an exceptionally gifted, but in many ways, mainstream American man. Would you agree with that assessment? Uh, Updike set himself out to transcribe, as he said, middleness in all of its um, glory and its warts. And yes, I think he thought of himself, he, he sometimes would say things that, to us seem remarkable, like, I'm really a very average person. Um, he liked a, an ordered, um, ordered, simple establishment life. He was not a radical. He was not a protester. He was not an underminer. He was, though his books aren't conventional, he was not primarily an innovator. Right. Um, so yes, I mean, there, there's a sense that he was ordinary. There are other ways in which he was very unordinary. He was smarter than most people, and he worked harder than almost everybody. Mm. I've often heard that um, the hard work probably matters more to a, a career of someone like that than being smart, that there are plenty of smart people out there, but it's dedication. Did, do you feel that, that that really comes through for him? I think it does. One of the things that happened to me as I was writing this book is I began to admire how much he worked and how hard he worked and the intensity with which he worked. You know, when he sat down as a typewriter, he had an ability to shut out everything except what was on the page in front of him. And the other thing is that, you know, there's not just the 60 books that he published, but there's the fact that he never had an agent. He never had a literary agent. Mm. So you're talking about 60 books, all of which were republished in different languages and in different formats. And all those rights and permissions he had to keep track of because there was no one else to do it for him. I mean, that would have taken, it would have been a full-time job for a literary agent. But he did that and continued to write. That's remarkable. So what were some of the other surprising things you learned while interviewing him and then while researching him? Um, Well, the most most interesting thing to me was to discover, I mean, uh, of course, a lot of this is going to be related to his rather famous um, infidelities, the period of um, couples and the Ipswich um, kind of adulterous society is what time called it. I was very, um, very surprised to discover, one, how promiscuous he had been, and two, Mm. how deeply he felt his first um, affair, how how hard it shook him, 
um, and how obsessed he became by it. Uh, he wrote a novel, Marry Me, that charts that affair um, in great detail. And when he finished it in 1964, he couldn't publish it because sure. it was too explosive. And so he actually put it literally into a saving, uh, a um, safe deposit box in the bank in Ipswich. And it stayed there for 12 years. Um, oh. This was a something I had absolutely no idea. I thought that Updike always wrote his books and then published them instantly. So moving beyond a little bit, uh, Updike, for over a dozen years, you were the books editor at the uh, New York Observer. Tell us about that experience there. I would, <laughs> it was a wonderful job. I mean, I, you, know, you, got, you received virtually every book that was published in the mail. Um, you had to sort through and decide um, what was of relevance and um, assign the reviews. I got to do a lot of my of, of the reviewing myself, which I love to do, and I got to work with all sorts of marvelous freelancers. Um, it's a little overwhelming the number of titles that come out every month. Sure, um, <laughs> you know, just novels uh, would be you know what uh, hundreds a month, and then when you add in the nonfiction, it becomes uh, scary. <laughs> sure, um, <laughs> but um, I, I, it was a great job, and I doing it for twelve years was. Um, a huge pleasure. Uh, the only thing I'd say is that it wasn't going to make me rich. Right. And how do you feel that your critical work influenced um, how you how you wrote this biography, how you approached talking about uh, not just a writer, but also his works? Um, I would probably go back further and, and say that before I was a um, a literary critic. I was uh, a gra I did I did a doctorate in American literature at mm. Stanford, training essentially to be a, a professor. Um, then I discovered writing and and decided not to go into the classroom. But the work I did for my doctorate and um, the literary studies I did, I think, had a lot to do with the way I approached this book. I um, I I'm a firm believer in deep reading. I think reading is wonderful to skim along, but if you reread and read deeply, you get to a different kind of pleasure and a different kind of meaning. And Updike wrote that way. He didn't. He didn't write for the quick fix. He wrote for. Uh, he had his eyes on the prize of um, la being long-lasting as an author and making a true um, contribution to the culture. Mm. And uh, both Rose and I uh, uh, handle reviews of, of books here at Publishers Weekly. And I just want to ask you, as a book review editor or reviewer yourself, how, how do you approach a review? How do you approach a book? Um, <laughs> I'm going to say the wrong thing right here. Okay. <laughs> there's, there's no <laughs> wrong answer. The first thing I do is judge a book by its cover. <laughs> we all do that. Right. The, the, the covers are important. The, the, the cover has everything you need to know. It tells you who the author is which is hugely important. It tells you what the title is, which is, you know, indicative of a lot. It tells you who the publisher is, which, though they're, you know, you can get surprised a lot. There are some publishers out there that are consistently great, mm -hmm. um, and you can feel a little bit confident about them. Um, and then, um, you know, it, it, it's rare that, a, that an author has no control over what a book looks like. So you get a little sense of an author, I think, from what his book looks like. Um, so that, I mean, I'm being a bit facetious when I say sure. this, but um, after that, I, it's just the simple test of you start reading and, and the moment you stop and you lose your faith in the author, 
you have to make a decision about whether to write a negative review or whether to drop it entirely. And so, so going on uh, along those lines, what do you think the reviewer's responsibility is? I'm going to take a leaf from Updike's page here and say that the he was a, a very prolific reviewer and a, an excellent one, and with an incredible range. He always thought that the purpose of reviewing was to bring the book to the reader, and that the review should be entirely at the service of both the book in, being reviewed and the the potential reader, and the that the reviewer should efface himself and not have an agenda beyond that service to author and reader. That's incredibly eloquent, I'm, and and that's I love that approach. I love the idea of being in service to the reader. So, who do you see as the eventual reader of your biography of Updike? Is this for scholars? Is this for his fans? It's easiest to say for his fans. Um, there are a lot of them out there, and I think they'll be very interested. Scholars will be, I hope, interested. Um, there's not been a biography, and, and even in this day of theory, a lot of critics rely on biographical information when they write about the work. Um, but I'm really hoping that there will be a Updike revival starting soon, partly because of the Library of America's ongoing program of publishing backup um, the old Updike books, mm-hmm. started with the two-volume collections of stories. Yeah, how wonderful it would be to have a revival, especially right about now. So, We've been talking with Adam Begley. You can find his book, Updike, in stores right now. Adam, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, PW Reviews editor Alex Crowley brings us an array of poems for Poetry Month, so stay tuned. Welcome back. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Every week we get insider info from Publishers Weekly editors and contributors, and today PW Reviews editor Alex Crowley is here to celebrate Poetry Month. Hi, Alex. Hello. So April is Poetry Month, and uh, it looks like poetry books are popping up like spring flowers. What have you got for us? Yeah, it's National Poetry Month coming just after... uh uh, March's AWP, where a lot of things get released. So, I've had a ton of things, a ton of books across my desk, a lot of really exciting ones, uh, a few exciting ones still to come. Uh, so, I brought a few in to talk about. But what, um, did, what is AWP? AWP is Association of Writers and Writer, Writing Programs. Um, so, a lot of university and small presses and journals and things like that. This year it was in Seattle. Um, they move it around every year. Mm-hmm. Um, but it tends to be where tons of new poetry and fiction and some other things are, you know, lit journals and things like that get released. But lots of poetry comes out of it. Um, and it's a good place to go and stock up if you can. People always leave their just bags full of, of books, and it's pretty great, if mm-hmm. not you know, a daunting experience. It's, it's like half the size of BEA, mm-hmm. so it's not quite the craziness, but... Right. But that's still a pretty substantial show, and we're talking thousands of people. Oh, yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, like, probably not quite 10,000 or something like wow. that. I don't know the exact numbers, but it, it is big. So, what have, what have you got for us that's come out of AWP and other books that have been published? Uh, so, the, 
uh, fairly recently, we've had uh, I've got two here from Wave Books that uh, we we've started the reviews for. One one review has run for Rachel Zucker's The Pedestrians, and we have a review forthcoming for uh, Joe Wenderoth's If I Don't Breathe, How Do I Sleep? Uh, Wave Books uh, a long time ago started off as verse verse books, and they just put out you know quality titles year after year and the design is always great as you can see it's sort of a sort of cream matte paper mm-hmm. and they, they usually always look like this it's very spare with, minimal but with what looks like hand script yeah yeah title um, and author just beautiful books um but these two in particular were eye catching and ear catching and uh brain catching and what makes it all that about them what makes it about this poetry these one thing that these um, the books that I brought in have in common, um, I think, is they're not they're not all satirical, but they all have uh, elements of social critique. Mm-hmm. Um, none of them take the the sort of uh, quiet pastoral route um, that a lot of people are familiar with in poetry, um, which kind of goes back to the general mis misreading and misteaching of. Emily Dickinson is like a quiet, you know, observational poet who is really just full of amazingly bombastic ideas and was way ahead of her time, but we tend to learn her poems wrong. And so people have an idea mostly of poetry as something that's, you know, there is the quiet and the introspection, but there's also... You know, it's been involved in social critique for so long. I mean, in uh, in Wenderoth's book, you know, he has a short poem called "Early Capitalism," which is not a not a favorable thing to say. Can you give us a a, a taste of what this uh, non-quiet poetry might read or, or sound like? Well, here's uh, uh, Wenderoth's "Early Capitalism." They are perfecting the pillow with which you are being suffocated. Now it sings to you and shows you pictures. So that's, I mean, that one to me is very Dickinson-esque. It's five lines, um, sort of not quite haiku-like, but, Mm -hmm. you know, there's an aphoristic quality through this book. A lot of the poems are uh, sparse, um, with a a, a couple of exceptions, but um, as opposed to Rachel Zucker, which is a lot of prose poems, um, is much more personal uh, and introspective, but also takes on the idea of um, the city living in, in New York City, mm-hmm. um, being away, uh, bring up her kids, um, and it's done in a. We we called it um, stealing a, a a quote from her book, which was woefully feminine. And in case anyone misunderstood our use of that, um, I thought that was a, an amazingly uh, positive. Uh, thing to say about the book um, in the way that it that it takes on motherhood and and sort of power and the demands um, daily demands on a woman's life uh, which I think is uh, a, she has a very different take on it um, or not a very different take but a, a novel uh, a way of looking at it and approaching that idea uh, I was going to ask actually whether there was a gender split within poetry which is a genre I'm not terribly familiar with or or I don't even know if genre is the right term, but a, a form that I'm not very familiar with. Whether you tend to see that you know, the books by men are the more political ones and the more outward-facing ones and the ones by women are more inward-facing autobiographical, or if there's really a mix. I think it's 
pretty well mixed, or at least what I gravitate to tends to be mixed. Um, you know, poetry has always been very uh, queer friendly too. So it, th- there's there's not a lot of uh, say hyper masculinity to deal with, right? And a lot of it has that's where the social cr- critique I think has always been. Um, it's it's always been from, or a lot of the times it's been from the position of. Um, the more marginalized segments of society it didn't you know we read the canon and it's not usually you know the white men canon but at the same time um in in uh, the modern era it certainly is a place for uh the voiceless to find a voice so you see a lot of there it, it is very mixed um i i find myself reading i think a lot more women recently um and i don't know if that's just because I think they're doing a lot of great work, um, and but I think it ebbs and flows really. Um, and then, you know, one book I don't have in front of me, um, but is, uh, is Mark Bibbins. They don't kill you because they're hungry; they kill you because they're full. Mm. What a title! It's an amazing title, amazing wow. book. Um, and, and can you tell us a little bit about Mark Bibbins? I mean, he's he's one of those more familiar names. Uh, in from from outside the poetry world he is uh i know him through the new school mm-hmm. um and just sort of around uh he was a founding editor of of lit the journal at the grad program at the new school mm-hmm. um in the early 90s and yeah he's been around for a, he's just an amazing character uh, um hopefully he hears this and hears him just self-described as a character um He's very pointedly political um, and does so in a way that is fun. Uh, it's very sharp um, and, you know, doesn't pull punches. I mean, in his in this book, uh, people, for for this reason alone, should get the book. That he has six what are called Pat Robertson transubstantiation engines. Um, <laughs> so, uh, so what exactly is a Pat Robertson transubstantiation engine? As far as I understand, the transubstantiation engine—it's uh, a taking of, uh, I think, a few lines uh, that are actually from Pat Robertson. Uh, mm-hmm. One of them that comes to mind is uh, an exchange with Jerry Falwell. Um, but you know, skewering the idea of this. You know the the mega church uh, Christian uh, like I don't know righteousness industry, um, and just taking that and turning it on on its head, um, and that's a that's a very overt uh, object of that Bivens goes after. But there are other ones in there. You know, like uh, mass media capitalism. Um, it, everything like in social media uh the, the book just sort of overwhelms you with these things but it, it's coming from the angle where we are bombarded with these things constantly so of course it's going to be in our work mm-hmm. um and i see i see that elsewhere like two of the other books that i have um patricia lockwood um her it's her second book um but it's on penguin so which is a, kind of a big deal that uh a young up-and-coming poet uh, is getting this kind of, I think, uh, very deserved attention. Um, 
And you say that because Penguin, obviously, is one of the major houses, but are they also known for their uh, poetry books? Um, I don't think as much. I, I think with the bigger houses, um, poetry tends to be a little bit of an afterthought. They'll put out big names, but it's not like, you know, Wave books is pretty much all poetry. Mm-hmm. You know, that's they're just devoted to it. And that's the community, the poetry community is like that in the way that the sci-fi community yeah. is, is like that. Um, but with Penguin, you know, the, you're going to have a lot more attention. It's probably going to end up in more bookstores or, you know, wherever you can find it. But I think uh, Trisha is amazing. Um, uh, Bibbins had published one of her poems called Rape Joke on the website, The All, A-W-L, mm-hmm. uh, where Bims is the poetry editor. And it went viral, like, yeah, immediately. Yeah, I, I saw that. It, it was, was astonishing. completely unex- uh, unexpected. Um, but the poem is, and it's in this book, uh, the book is called Motherland, Fatherland, Homeland, Sexuals. Um, and it is, with a title like that, it's crass and... Mm. Uh, pretty hilarious but also pointed in taking our language flipping it around mm-hmm. uh turning it on it back on itself and turning our way of thinking sort of inside out i think she's one of the most imaginative poets going today she's not interested in just oh i'm gonna you know play with these words she's playing with words for words sake but also playing with words and language and sentence structure and the way that we, the way that she takes an idea and flips it around and then runs with it, right. it's a you know an Alice in Wonderland esque experience to read her poems and to read her books, um, which I think is a lot of fun. And I think if there's one thing that could get more people into poetry, it would be that realizing how much fun it is. Like she she's called it. Uh, you know, like a you know imagination vehicle or something like that I saw online the other day and uh, I think that's what it is I think that's what makes poetry pretty amazing if people are on Twitter they should follow Trisha Lockwood on, on Twitter because it's it's definitely worth she's such an amazing weirdo it's great um, <laughs> what's her Twitter handle? oh I forget I think it's just Trisha Lockwood mm-hmm. and as far as talking about poetry as some crazy vehicle for the imagination. Um, the last book I brought in uh, is Sally Wen Mao's debut called uh, Mad Honey Symposium. And this one's from um, Alice James. And as far as a debut, I think it's pretty fantastic. It, the language play is just beautiful. Um, whereas, uh, say, someone like Wenderoth is pretty sparse and, and minimal uh, and pointed. Mao is closer to a maximalist. The descriptions are just overflowing, and you you uh, are immersed in in the world that's created. In, in in Lockwood's poems, you're also immersed in a world that's a uh, totally surreal mm-hmm. and bizarre and cartoonish almost. Um, with Mao, you have that surreal overflowing of. Uh, being in in this strange new environment where you're not sure what you're looking at um but it's more that like real things real objects real situations are just sort of transformed the color is transformed the taste is transformed um 
the mad honey of the title, something I hadn't heard of before, is a is a real thing. It's a a type of honey that comes from rhododendron and maybe something else that actually in sort of tiny quantities is somewhat hallucinogenic or um, intoxicating and I think is maybe used as an aphrodisiac but in sort of normal and larger quantities uh, it's very very toxic Um, and that sort of uh, toxicity, the poison, um, ideas of like hunger and desire go run through this book. But um, she also takes you know, historical um, accounts of the uh, I th- Xenophon comes up and Pompey. Uh, both had ex- their both their, their armies had experiences uh, with this mad honey. Uh, I th- think at the time from the Black Sea area. Huh. Um, so so that that idea runs through it and so it's taking in this you know common thing honey that everyone eats it's sweet it's delicious um and then but there is a toxic kind that comes from a very particular flower and i don't know if there's a way that you can know of it beforehand um so the consumption of this ah at first it's intoxicating delightful and aphrodisiac and then you're paralyzed i don't think you can die from it but it can definitely do some damage. Um, and the book is definitely has that quality to it. It is alluring and intoxicating. You get into the language and then it will throw an idea at you and you're just sort of paralyzed in reading it. Um, it's, it, it's really, it's really fun. Um, I'm, I'm super into the book. Um, this one comes out, I I don't think until May. Mm -hmm. Um, and also Trisha's book doesn't come out until, um, June but it's something to look forward to for poetry people out there. Um, well, Zucker and Wenderoth and Bibbins, their books are all out. Great. Um, Bibbins is from Copper Canyon. I forgot to mention that mm. before. Um, and for our listeners who aren't that familiar with poetry, who maybe want to uh, start educating themselves a little bit for Poetry Month, what better time to start? Mm-hmm. Uh, is there any book here you would particularly recommend to those who are poetry naive? Ooh, I think maybe Patricia's would be a good start um, for a lot of reasons, especially in that it's it's pretty accessible. Mm-hmm. Um, it's really fun. It doesn't do a lot of the weirder things I think that people associate with poetry right. um, in in terms of being uh, obscure or mm-hmm. oblique right. or it's it's not super experimental formally. Um, but I think they're all, I think all of these books are they are art in the way that art is taking the world that you know and you know takes it on at an angle. Um, Emily Dickinson's Tell the Truth, but Tell It Slant. It's that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. So I think anyone can get into poetry as long as they. It's it's no different than going to a museum and looking at paintings and figuring out what you like about it there's just a lot of it and it's all it's a lot to dig through mm-hmm. so um but i think i think any of these any of these five books would be uh, great for someone to come in they see it in the store they see it online um and and, and see what they like about it see what they don't like about it and find something else 
Great. Well, thank you so much, Alex. It's great to have you on the show always. And thank you for this roundup of what sound like a bunch of really cool books. Thank you very much. Great. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and you've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. You can find this and every episode of Publishers Weekly Radio on our website at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio and on iTunes, available for you to listen absolutely free. Check the site every week for a brand new episode giving you the inside story on your favorite story. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio Show. 